Good evening, everybody. It's so good to be here. I have some friends in this audience going back decades, and some for you, it's been a long time since I've seen you, and it's, it's, a, it's a blessing to me to be able to see your smiling faces again. Um, I, am, I am now Dr. Robert Carter. I am a Christian. I'm also a scientist. That makes me a very rare commodity in the ivory towers. Uh, we have, um, at Creation Ministries International, uh, the organization I work for, we have 15 PhD scientists. Most of them came to Christ later in life. I was uh, upside down compared to most of my colleagues, and I went through the evolutionary meat grinder, struggling and struggling and struggling with my faith, trying to come up with answers to what I was learning. Um, what I want to share with you tonight is a message on some of the reasons why it's becoming more and more difficult to be a Christian in American culture. Um, all the older folks, you can see how the culture is changing. You younger people, you're in the middle of it, and you don't quite realize it. I'm in between that and so I've got now a couple of decades of perspective and watch. A little bit about CMI first. Uh, we produce Creation Magazine. Uh, this has been oh, our flagship publication for over 36 years. It goes out to about 110 different countries. Um, but not just Creation Magazine. We also host Creation.com, which is a gigantic website. I think we just hit about 9,000 web articles. So when this is over and you're wondering uh, if you've got a question I didn't address and you want a, an answer to it, just go to creation.com. Uh, I can almost guarantee you we have an article on that question. And if not, we'll write a new article and fill in the gap. Um, we're also on Facebook and Twitter, and we have an a Android app, an iPhone app. But basically everything we do is wrapped up around this whole creation evolution issue. And I want to start off with a simple illustration. You all remember Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, right? Remember when he died? Well, would you be surprised to learn that after he died, we got dozens of emails saying, why did God create stingrays? Oh, you know a question they're asking? Why is there suffering and death in the world? That question is wrapped up in the gospel. But evolutionary theory has no answer to that question. Suffering and death is what produced people over millions of years, according to Charles Darwin. But that's not an answer to the pain and longing that people have when they lose one of their loved ones or one of their favorite entertainers. It's a big gaping hole in evolutionary theory. So what we did is we tried to patch the hole. And we wrote this article called The Crocodile Hunter and Death's Sting. It has nothing to do with Steve Irwin, stingrays, crocodiles. It's our best approach at a decent gospel presentation. And we were shocked because... This was about six or seven years ago. We sent this out to what was then a very small email list. And um, we can count the number of people that click on the link in the email and where they are in the world. It's really, technology is really neat. Um, and uh, vastly more people clicked on that link than we sent it to. Wait a minute. Someone said, we just built an evangelism tool. Accidentally, we now know that people take our emails and forward them on to other people that they know. Lots and lots of other people. And it's really exciting. We have a, some hot topic that we have to write about, and, it goes, and we just watch it go around the world. So um, since this time, about once a week, we'll try to identify some really hot topic in American culture. And we'll have an article on it, if we haven't, or we'll write a brand new article on it. We'll put it in our link. We send it to people on our email list. You remember last October, um, the big announcement was the gospel of Jesus' wife. Remember that? Some uh, scholar had found a, a piece of papyrus um, that claimed, and she claimed it was one of the lost gospels, and this gospel claimed that Jesus was married. Within three days, we had a rebuttal on our website. 
and our rebuttal has held. Next week or two, other scholars started rebuttaling that, that initial claim. But we were on top of that one. That was, that was actually a big score on our part. Um, if you'd like to get this kind of information, about once a week, we'll get something in your email inbox. That's what the sign-up form looks like. They're going to go around now. Now you know what to do with it. If you don't want to get it, no big deal. But please just help pass the clipboards around. Thank you. Thank you. Now, while those are going around, I'm going to start talking about the Bible. Now, for the next 45 minutes, I'm going to be discussing the Bible as if the Bible were the history book of the universe. Why do I do that? A lot of people say, because it is the history book of the universe. Well, wait a second. No, it claims to be. Whether it is or not is something that we as Christians have to figure out. And it's not always easy to figure this out. And I understand there's a lot of different ways of interpreting Genesis. I've held several of these over my life. When I was in high school, you would have heard me parrot my high school biology teacher who said, oh, maybe each of the days of Genesis was really a long period of time. That's the first time I'd ever heard anyone, she was you know, secular public school in New York State, this is no Christian bastion here. But this lady tried to take the days of Genesis and science and do that to him. I said, oh, that's how you work it. Oh, each of the days of Genesis, long period of time, no problem. Until someone pointed out to me that that would mean that God created the sun millions of years after he created plants. Because that's the order given in Genesis. Well, about this time I was becoming, I didn't know the term then, but I now know the term. It's called a theistic evolutionist. Everyone that I knew believed in evolution. Every Christian I knew that ever talked about it believed in evolution. And so I said, well, maybe God used the process of evolution to create. Maybe he woke up a Neanderthal man and put a spirit in him and called him Adam. See, what am what I trying to do? I wasn't trying to compartmentalize my faith. I was trying to make my faith fit to the world as I understood the world. Most everyone goes through this process. And therefore, there's a huge diversity of topics. And the problem is that all of these alternate theories do have one thing in common. All of them are attempting to add millions of years to a time frame that the words do not suggest. All of these ideas here inadvertently introduce millions of years of death and suffering prior to when the Bible says that death and suffering started. So if we adopt one of these, if we try to take evolutionary theory and roll it into biblical history, we instantly come up with a theological problem. But if we adopt the straightforward reading of the Bible, we instantly come up with scientific problems. Those are not easy questions to answer. I know this. Uh, many of you might know this face, Dr. Francis Collins. Dr. Collins is the out, the 100%, he's the most um, well-known Christian in the world of science today. There is not any Christian anywhere in the world of science that has a higher rank than Dr. Collins. Uh, he ran the Human Genome Project. This man spent $3 billion. This man is now the, national, the director of the National Institutes of Health. Now, so here we got a guy, claims to be an evangelical Christian. I'm not questioning that because I used to be in this position. But here's a quote from an article called The Search for the Historical Adam that appeared in Christianity Today a couple of years ago. It says, Collins' 2006 bestseller, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief, reported scientific indications that anatomically modern humans emerged from primate ancestors perhaps 100,000 years ago long before the Genesis time frame, and originated with a population of numbers something like 10,000, not two individuals. 
So here's a scientist presenting evidence for faith, and what is the evidence that he presents? That is the out-of-Africa theory of Darwinian evolution. That's exactly where those numbers come from. Why is that evidence for faith? It confuses me. Uh, many of you might know the name Dr. Albert Muller. He's president of Seventh Theological Seminary. He's talking about this, this issue. He's on actually on NPR on the radio. He's talking about his evolution thing and, and, and Christian theology. And he says, the moment you say we have to abandon this theology in order to have the respect of the world, you end up with neither biblical orthodoxy nor the respect of the world. So let me issue your first challenge for tonight. I do understand the process that God brings us through. Essentially, when we come to Christ, God puts us on a conveyor belt. And he says, I'll see you at the end. And you spend the rest of your life figuring stuff out. And I know there's lots of different attempts to figure it out. But if, here's my challenge. If you are attempting to take the Bible and downplay the straightforward readings because you want to win respect of unbelievers, it's not going to work. Here's the greatest unbeliever of all. Not really, but uh, Richard Dawkins. He's the uh, most foremost anti-theistic, anti-Christian apologist in the world today. His goal, actually, is not to convert people to evolution. No, evolution is his platform. His goal is to convert people to atheism. He has spoken this and said this bluntly. He does not like Christianity. And he says, he said this, this is actually on a Christian a television program. He said, I think the evangelical Christians have really got it right in a way. And seeing evolution as the enemy, whereas the more, what shall we say, sophisticated theologians are quite happy to live with evolution. Well, I think they're deluded. I think evangelicals have got it right in that there really is a deep incompatibility between evolution and Christianity. Okay, what did I just do? I just set up a problem. Three different opinions. Three different people. Are the answers easy? Good. We all, we all acknowledge that, right? Okay, good. So we can all, we're all on the same boat. This is a very difficult subject. It requires bravery and diligence, lots of thinking and lots of time. And I tell you what, I have heard a lot of people say, oh, that's what the Bible says and that's what science says. No. These two things have to match up if the Bible's real. So what we have to do, even if we don't have the answer, we have to acknowledge that as a challenge. I don't know the answer to that. You know, I might have enough time today to answer that, but I'm going to get to that, and we have to at least acknowledge there's a problem. But put the question in a little box, put it on with a little bow in the back of your mind that says, open in five years, and then go to it again. Don't just shove it off to the side because you're afraid of it. And I start with this whole evolution thing because I want to impress upon you how important the book of Genesis is for Christianity you got to understand, there are over a hundred references to the book of Genesis in the New Testament. In fact, one of our um, this, uh, Genesis New Testament article, one of our scholars went through and read the entire New Testament and counted up every single reference and listed them. There are over a hundred. Sixty of those come from the first eleven chapters. Ooh, wait a minute. What's in the first eleven chapters of the Bible? Adam and Eve, Noah's flood, and the Tower of Babel. Most every college professor in this country would tell you that's just mythology. And yet every single New Testament author refers to them. Every book of the Bible, I believe, at least every author refers to them. Of the New Testament, not the Bible. And Jesus, at least 16 times as recorded in the Gospels, quotes from these first 11 chapters. And when they quote from these things, they do it very matter-of-factly, like this one. 
Jesus' famous defense between marriage between one man and one woman, which is a real hot topic in American culture today. He says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made the male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, so they are no more twain but one flesh. That is a direct quote and or allusion to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And I realized the young man reading this, I had a problem because I couldn't stick millions of years before Adam, if Adam existed at the beginning of creation. I said, maybe Jesus was wrong. Do you see the peril that I was in? Now take your average 18-year-old, go the way to college, what happens? Suddenly they have to decide if it's their religion or mommy and daddy's religion. And what is everyone around them telling them? That evolutionary theory utterly debunks Christianity. Look what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. They're talking about, you know, uh, can a man be born again, that passage. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Well, I believe one of the main reasons why Christianity struggles to remain relevant in our culture right now is because most people have decided they can dismiss the Bible based on the bad history and the bad science. It's full of holes. It's full of faulty logic. The guys were wrong, they say. And therefore, guess what happens when they write something about spiritual stuff? Yeah, they made that up too. There's a path, a progress from doubt to no faith. I was on that path. I am a statistic. I should not be here right now. Look what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, Wherefore is by one man... Who is that man? Adam. By Adam sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Wait a minute. Is he saying that death didn't exist before Adam existed? Yes. Therefore, evolutionary theory is impossible according to Scripture. Because evolutionary theory requires millions of years before death because Adam did not exist 13.6 billion years ago when they say the Big Bang was. By the way, if evolutionary theory in the big picture is true from the Big Bang till today, God has not required it at any step. That's what it was invented for. There's a philosophy out there. It's called naturalism. It's a belief that natural processes can explain everything that's ever happened any time in the whole history of the universe. And naturalism invalidates any need for God. Oh, God might exist as some distant figure out there who doesn't really do anything, but His presence is not necessary. And that's critical to get that. Now, we get this whole idea that death and suffering comes from sin from Genesis chapter 2. The Bible says, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Please don't get hung up on the last word. I've seen several times where some skeptic derailed a well-meaning Christian, usually on Facebook or something like that, by pointing out the glaring error in the Bible here. Do you see the error, according to the skeptics? Does it say, in that day you will die? Does it say that? But does it say a couple of chapters later that Adam lived to 930 years? 
which is right. Man, you hear stuff like, man, I get mad when I hear, I want to punch a person in the nose when I hear stuff like that. Usually because I don't really have a ready answer. But let me give you the answer to this one. You see, the word death in Hebrew is actually used twice. This is a very tricky, and the end of that sentence is really tricky to translate. It means something like, in dying you shall die. Or Adam, the moment you eat the fruit, the process of death is going to start. And you will eventually die. And guess what? Adam died. How come he lived so long? Because God is merciful. How come you're alive right now? Because God is merciful to you. Tell you what. The end of last December, I was cutting wood with a chainsaw. I ended up with two inches of my shin bone exposed and I would have died if my wife and kids weren't home to take me to the emergency room. Why am I alive right now? Because God is merciful. Because he put me in the 2000s, not in the 1800s, where I would have died of some bacterial infection. I don't have to be here. And you know what? If you're a Christian, I don't know what that purpose is, but God's got a reason for having you on earth right now. And guess what happens when your purpose is fulfilled in God's eyes? You die. And it's okay. But if you're not a Christian, I tell you what, you've got a lot of faith in what happens after the fact. Faith that you cannot know until it's over. But you know what? Adam did what I would do. He reached out. He took the fruit from that tree. Adam, in his state of perfection, did what I would do in an instant in my state of imperfection. And because he ate that fruit, he rebelled directly against his creator God that he knew personally and intimately. Walked with him in the garden. God said, Cursed is a ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. But it's not just the dirt that's cursed. It's the entire universe. In Romans 8, we know that the whole creation, the Greek word kapisis, all of creation, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. That passage, by the way, answers the Steve Irwin problem. We suffer and we die because of the inherited effects of sin that we got from our ancestor, Adam. But you know what? A lot of people say, well, that's not fair. Why do I suffer for something I didn't do? Any Muslim would tell you that, by the way. But you know what? Without even answering the question, we can just turn it around because it's also not fair that we're blessed for something we didn't do. Because Jesus Christ stepped between us and death and he took that curse upon himself and I'm sorry, he did not deserve that. If it wasn't for the grace and mercy of God, I would not be here right now. And I understand that work of redemption and I am amazed. It wasn't fair. But for the Christian, there's a great hope. Look at Revelation 21. The end of the Bible now. It says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. What are the former things? It's all that junk we inherited from Adam. In Revelation 22, it says there's no more curse. The very end of the Bible talks about the tree of life again. Wait a minute. Or the book of life, sorry. Depending on your translation, I shouldn't have said that. Off topic. Don't get into the King James argument, Carter. Don't do it. Sorry. Forgive me. Um, what's happening here at the end of Revelation is everything is being wrapped up and being restored to the, ori- the original. What original? The Edenic original. All things are going to be remade as they were in the beginning. Revelation is answering the problem set up in the first book of the Bible. Revelation and Genesis are two bookends on a very nice 
consistent story. Can you see that rainbow? This squiggly line, those are all the books in the Bible. That rainbow, those are all the cross-references amongst all the chapters, sorry, the chapters in the Bible. You can't pull Genesis, these first 50 chapters, out of that picture without destroying the integrity of the rest of the Bible. You know what's really cool? You can't do that with any other ancient document. The Bible stands alone in its completeness, its togetherness, its agreement with itself. But a lot of people have pulled Genesis out, and a lot of things might happen. How many of you have heard of Billy Graham? Okay, good. Good. You're awake. Now, Billy Graham does not do this, but he had a very good friend named Charles Templeton. Now, Charles Templeton, that black and white photo is a picture of him preaching to a stadium full of people. Do you know what I would give to preach to a stadium full of people? And yet, before he died, he writes this book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. The man died an atheist. Now, putting the whole sovereignty of God aside, looking at the book, he details his specific reasons for rejecting Christianity. You know what he's got? He's just got a bunch of questions he doesn't think Christianity answers. He's got questions about the age of the earth, oh, the source of the flood water, the size of Noah's Ark, the existence of eight men, you know, had stuff like get here from outer space and the universe only 6,000 years old. Those are all Genesis questions. We've got more information on this topic than any other time in church history. We should be shouting this from the rooftops. And yet, significant people right here in Christian, not America, have never heard anyone defend the Bible. I was 19 years old before I met anyone who I thought was a believer in the history of the Bible. I had gone to church all my liberal denomination, but I had gone to church all my life. I had never met anyone, and I thought that person had three heads. They're trying to tell me that Adam and Eve were real, and the Bible you said the universe only a short age. I was like, what are you, nuts? And you know what? That person who did not have a college degree was a homeschool mom, taught math, didn't really know anything else as far as my nerdy self thought, right? My, my stuck-up Georgia Tech nerd geek guy thought I knew everything about science. And she stood there with me as I said, evolution's a fact. This fact. Here's a fact. Here's a fact. Here's that. She didn't have any answers. So I said, and this fact. She goes, oh yeah, what about this? And she hit me. Ooh! She knew something! And you know what? I had no idea how to answer her question. And that defense burned a hole in my heart. God used that testimony in my life to change me in a very profound way. She wasn't a PhD. In fact, a lot of you know her. I'm not going to mention her name. But she was willing to stand there and get abuse heaped upon her by the arrogant little jerk called Robert Carter at 19 years old. Now, wait a second. They're not throwing us to the lions today, are they? They're not burning us at the stake, are they? So what are you afraid of? Getting called bad names? Bruce Short wrote a very interesting book called The Harsh Truth About Public Schools. Now, putting the whole private homeschool, public school thing aside, it's a very interesting quote. He says, The overwhelming majority of children from evangelical families leave the church within two years after they graduate from high school. Only 9% of 1 out of 10 of evangelical teens believe there's any such thing as absolute moral truth. 
where do we get the idea that there's no absolute moral truth? Straight out of Darwinian evolutionary theory. 90% of kids being raised in Christian homes, my home, as I was being raised. Just adopt evolutionary theory as a way to explain things because that's what they heard. And guess what happens when you get off to college? What is most, most college experiences in America today? What is college? It's an environment of hedonism. Anything goes. And guess what? You people with gray hair, you didn't live in this world. All you people younger than me, you're growing up in this world. The world today is hostile to Christianity. I was in the middle of that progression. I was kind of, you know, whatever, you're a Christian, okay, that's cool, maybe not. But today, if you name the name of Christ on the college campus, it will affect your grades. It will dictate what friends you have. It will dictate what career path you're going to choose. I have examples of people that I know that could not get a recommendation letter from their college advisor to go to graduate school because they were a Christian. Welcome to America. What happened? Well, here's my next challenge for you. I submit to you is that if you want to be salt and light in your community, that you have to prepare yourself to answer some of the most common objections that you're going to hear. Uh, we just interviewed a, a pretty famous evangelist, and he's going to appear in our Creation Magazine, uh, I think the next issue. And we asked him, we said, hey, um, how many times when you're talking to people does the, uh, the issue of evolution come up? He goes, on the street, oh, eight out of ten times. See, people over 50 years old, if they're not a Christian, you'll hear stuff like, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions, and they'll attempt to name a contradiction. People younger than 35 years old, oh, come on, don't you know we evolved from monkeys in Africa six million years ago? Totally different fields that we have to prepare ourselves for depending upon who we're talking to. A total culture shift. So, if we want to address this issue in people's lives. Now, I understand that sin is the reason why people reject Christ. I got that. But you know what the biggest excuse for sin is in culture right now? Evolutionary theory. Because if evolution is true, there is no definition of the words right and wrong, good or evil, or moral. Morality is what the culture decides is moral. Oh my. Look at history. I don't want to live in that world. But if we can give them an alternative to that, I think it's a very persuasive and powerful motivator to get them to consider the gospel. So let me give you a couple strategies. Here's one. Hey, Mr. Evolutionist, you realize we're wrestling with the same set of facts, right? Right? Is a fossil a fact, yes or no? Yeah, it's a thing. You can hold it. You can look at it. You can measure it. Is the age of the fossil a fact? Oh, good, good. Put that thought in your head. The age is a question of historical interpretation. And to get to the age, we have to look at authority of scholars who are telling us what is true and what is not. So it's an issue of authority. Well, what authority are we going to choose? Very good question. Here's another idea for you. Charles Darwin and basically every evolutionist since him, they attempted to set up two worlds. The world of evolution and the world of creation. And Darwin said, he didn't say this, but essentially every little bit of information I can find that supports evolutionary theory disproves creation. But there's a problem with that thinking. And this is a problem. Both theories claim to explain a lot of the same data. 
So anything that both theories claim, you cannot say is a proof or disproof of either one. No, let me give you an example. Darwin went down to the local um, zoo and he spent a long time staring at chimpanzees. He said, look at the chimpanzee. Look how similar they are to humans. Obviously, we had a common ancestor. Wait a minute, Mr. Darwin. Um, let's go down to the museum and the other end of the museum there and let's look at all these works by Picasso. Well, Picasso wasn't alive yet. Uh, Rembrandt. And let's look at all these paintings. Obviously, look at them, the same brush strokes. You can change, see the pigment morph over time as you learn more about things and all this stuff. You can tell they all had the same designer. Not a common ancestor, a common mind behind the creation. Oh, but wait a minute, what about modern times? Don't we know that humans and chimpanzees are 98% identical to chimpanzees? Sorry, I didn't quite say that right. But yeah, yeah, you know what I meant, right? Humans and chimpanzees are 98% identical. True or false? One, no. Um, I am a geneticist. I got my degree studying genetics. And since then, I've, done, I've studied human genetics. I have a human genome right here. I've got the chimpanzee genome right here. I have two different Neanderthal genomes. We have another human genome. I've got about 10,000 mitochondrial genomes right here on my laptop. I write computer programs to analyze these things. I'm a nerd. Got it? Okay. I know the human and chimpanzee genomes are not 98% identical. Not even close. But you know what? The number doesn't matter. Because if chimpanzees didn't exist, they'd look at gorillas. They'd look at, look at us and gorillas. We're 90% identical. Obviously, we have a common ancestor. Or if gorillas didn't exist, oh, look at us and mice. We're all mammals. Obviously, we have a common ancestor. There's no proof or disproof in any of this. It's just an authority telling you what must be true. Wait a second. I think that chimpanzees are similar to us genetically because they look like us, they kind of act like us, they eat the same foods we do, and they live in the same environment except we invented clothes so we can survive winter. I would not expect them to be as different from us as like an avocado. And there they are, the most similar species to human beings. Did I just lose my faith over that? No. Okay, but what about change over time? Didn't Darwin prove the species change over time? Wasn't that his big introduction to science? Absolutely not. People were writing about this at least a hundred years before Darwin, species changing over time. What Darwin said was that I see no limit to the amount of change. And that is a philosophical argument. Because it's not something can actually be tested. Okay, that's a little sick. Let's, let's, let's relax a little bit. Everybody go. Everybody go. <gasps> Okay, a third idea for you. A little simpler, a very important idea. What is science? Most people, when they hear the word science, they think of this guy in his lab coat in his, in his laboratory doing observable and testable and repeatable experiments over and over again. That type of science is called operational science. And operational science has led to the development of all of our modern technology. Uh, last summer, uh, NASA landed a nuclear-powered automobile on Mars using operational science. It has absolutely nothing to do with evolution. And in fact, that type of science was pioneered by Christians. Most every major branch of science was invented by someone who believed the Bible. Why? Because of theology. Because from the first time in world history, an entire culture said, you know what, we have a genius creator God. That's what our Bible says. And you know what? The universe 
has to reflect God's character. What does the Bible say? God is unchanging. Hence, the development of what we now call natural law. Natural law came straight out of Christian theology, not out of Greek theology where they had Zeus on the mountaintop throwing down lightning bolts and messing up people's experiments. Rationality, predictability, the scientific pursuit was pioneered by Christians. Christianity and science are not at odds with one another until you introduce the second form of science. Now, this is still science. It is. But it's not operational science. The other form is called historical science. And this is where a person takes something they don't know the history of and they try to apply operational science to explain like the formation of that fossil. But historical science is not observable because you can't go back in time with a notebook and take notes. It's not repeatable because it only happens once. Wait a minute. Operational science has to be testable and repeatable. Historical science isn't even testable. You cannot produce all of the conditions that led to any fossilization of anything in the laboratory. Can you see the difference? National Geographic doesn't want you to know the difference because they flip between operational and historical sometimes in the same sentence. And it's so tight that sometimes it's even hard for me to elect where they made this switch right there. But if you can train yourself to look for the switch, that is a tremendous antidote for what you're being told. But is, did Genesis really happen? Is the Garden of Eden, when I say Garden of Eden, what goes into your mind? If there's Adam and Eve up there under the tree, and there's a bear and elephants, and there should be dinosaurs up there, but ours didn't put them in, and some flowers. Genesis 1.31 said, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Well, do you do what I used to do? Is your Garden of Eden coming after millions of years of evolution? I tried so hard to put these thoughts together, but you know, every time I tried, my Garden of Eden ended up losing, and my faith was crumbling fast. One significant person in this room I met when I was about 19 and the week I met that person, my entire spiritual life turned around and all of a sudden God's like, Rob, you've got to take me more seriously. And I remember people sitting um, uh, sitting me down when I was at Georgia Tech saying, Rob, man, stop talking. Just be quiet. Sit there and listen to this. I said, the Bible can explain the fossil record. I said, no way. The Bible doesn't even talk about the fossil record. And he said, yeah, yeah, watch this. We can put it in context. Here's where the fossil record is formed. And they pointed me to Genesis chapter 6. And this is about 15 or 1600 years after that whole Adam and Eve scene. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God tells Noah to build a large ship. We call it an ark. In Genesis chapter 7 says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that same day. Hey, does that mean like a historical statement to you? Come on, English majors, what genre is this? Poetry, prophecy, allegory, or historical narrative? This reads just like historical narrative. The writer of Genesis intended for you to think that on that particular day of Noah's life, something happened. On that day, the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, did it really happen? And if it happened, what would you expect to see? When you go outside these doors, do you see Noah's flood? Do 
Where did all this red clay come from? Volcanic rocks that were eroded. The evolution of those over millions of years. What are you here in Gadsden, Alabama? Do you see Noah's flood here? Sometimes it's hard. Here's a geological map of Alabama. In order of age, the oldest sediments are on the north and the youngest sediments are in the south, according to the evolutionist. We have Cretaceous dinosaur era sediments in about the north half of the state. And then something odd happened because the shoreline wasn't down there at the Gulf Coast. The shoreline was a good way up, up to your state, the division between that green and the yellow sections. So what we call the tertiary area, era, after the dinosaurs died out, we have the tertiary that's above the water and then the beach in the tertiary that's below the water. I believe that that right there is the old shoreline that occurred after Noah's flood. I think that not, uh, there's a lot of discussion amongst different creationists. Everyone's got different ideas. But there seems to be a, a general consensus that the end of the flood was after the end of the dinosaur area and a lot of that tertiary stuff is the end of the flood and right after the flood. And then all the mud you have in the, in the south, that's recent. Very recent. After the water level dropped when the ice age occurred. There's the history that I'm looking at at your state. Oh, there's so much more geology I want to talk about. We have to cover a couple things first. First of all, think what water, as it coming onto a continent, flooding continents, would be behind. What would rapidly rising muddy water leave behind? And what scale do we expect? Now apply that thought to something like Grand Canyon. What do you see all over the world in all these rocks? Flat sediments laid down over tens of thousands of square miles. You see this white band towards the top? Here it is again, called the coconut of sandstone. And sitting on top of a shell, there's lots of shell around here. Shell is soft rock. It's basically petrified mud and it rose really quickly. Well, that shell is underneath the sandstone and the evolutionary geologist says there's a 10 to 12 million year gap when the shell was above the oceans, exposed to the atmosphere, before the sandstone started getting laid down. But they also believe it took less than 10 to 12 million years to carve most of the Grand Canyon. Where are the baby Grand Canyons on the surface of that shell? They're not there. Where is the evidence of time and erosion? It's not there. Most of the time for the evolutionists is in those gaps. And yet when you look at the gaps, you rarely see evidence of time. That is a trade secret they don't want you to know. And that is true over most of the world. And apparently, there's also an, a massive amount of er evidence for massive amounts of erosion of water flowing in sheets across much of the continental surface. And what they did first is they planed things off. And then as the waters got shallower, it looks like they channeled and ate into some of the remaining sediments, leaving really weird landforms behind. Notice, all these beats and mesas have the same height, right? That was an erosional plane. And then something carved into that and carried the sand off the continent. Notice, are there piles of boulder at the bases of these things? No. And current processes of, of erosion are rounding off these beats and mesas, not creating vertical cliffs. So you've probably heard in science classes, the present is the key to the past. You've heard that? If the present is the key to the past, something different must have occurred in the past to explain that. It should not be there. And I could use tons of different examples. Okay, so that's the rocks. 
The rocks are laid down by Noah's flood. And we've got to get into our head that Noah's flood is not a kid's story. This is a horror story. This is the wrath of God poured out onto ungodliness. But you know there's a beautiful picture here? Because Noah, through faith alone, came through these raging waters of death and came out alive on the other side. You know what the New Testament tells us? That anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is going to be ushered through those waters of death and come out alive on the other side to inherit eternal life in heaven. And guess what? Both of those pictures are in the midst of judgment. And the only way to survive the judgment, in either case, is through faith alone. We can also get a, a grasp on the size of the ark. This is a conservative estimate. It could be larger than that. You see the semi-trucker scale. There is more than enough room on board, aboard that vessel for two of every kind of animal. That's less than 12,000 pairs of animals, including all the extinct ones. And if we draw it at the family level, so we know that dogs and gray wolves and red wolves and coyotes and dingoes and African jackals, we know they can all interbreed. If they can all interbreed, and we draw the level up to there, well, Noah's only got to take about 800 pairs of animals. Anybody a farmer? How many animals do you take care of a day? This is manageable, not pleasant. It's going to be nasty, hard work when the fleas and the flies and the stink, but it's possible. But something else odd about Noah's Ark. This article appeared in our Journal of Creation now, back in 1994. Some naval architects studied Noah's Ark, and they said, that's, that's amazing. Because when we build ships today with the same length-to-width-to-height ratio of Noah's Ark, those are the most stable ships on the ocean. If you build them longer, skinnier, taller, shorter, whatever, they roll more. How did Noah know how to build the most possible stable ship? God told him. And God invented physics. That is a testimony to the accuracy of the Bible that that shape was picked out. When you read... Um, maybe like the, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Babylonian uh, lore, um, you can see the corruption because their, their ark is a cube. The absolute worst shape for an ocean-going vessel. It's going to roll every direction like crazy. The Bible spots it. Okay, let's look briefly at what's inside the rocks. Does anybody know how a fossil is formed? Good, because neither do I. Here's a model. This is from a museum in Australia. They've got a dead dinosaur sinking to the bottom of an ocean. And he rots and his skeleton is lying in. Over millions of years in the bottom left here, he's buried and petrified. And millions of years later, he's lifted up above the oceans and the sediments and the rocks now. Erosion occurs and now there's a dead dinosaur sticking out of the side of the hill. True or false? How do you know? What kind of science is this? Operational science? It's Yes, 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 it's historical science. And you know what? This is designed to be tested. Let's test it. How do you test this idea? Well, you get in a submarine, you look around the bottom of the ocean until you find a dead whale. They should have known better. Because not only is everything eaten at the bottom of the ocean, but bones dissolve in seawater. In order to get a fossil like this, you have to bury it rapidly away from oxygen and petrify it before it rots. So here's our model. Here's Goldie. He's happily swimming along and suddenly he's underwhelmed or overwhelmed by an avalanche caused by Noah's flood and now he's dead. But think about this. He's buried in mud, right? And the mud is wet and water dissolves salts and minerals. What happens is the mud dries out. The salts and minerals are going to crystallize and if we can do it quick enough, we can replace parts of his body with this crystalline stuff. We call that a fossil. It must occur quickly or you'd never get the fish eating a fish fossil. 
You never get the mother ichthyosaur giving birth fossil. Do you see the baby? You never get a felt hat that turned to stone after being buried in volcanic ash for 20 years. It petrified. You'd never get freeze-framed action. Three-dimensional preservation. That dinosaur on the left is standing up. How come he didn't fall over after he died? Because he was overwhelmed in mud above his head and he died standing. The guy in the right, I mean, you look, his claws are on the, where the body used to be. That's amazing. It's also rapid. You'd never get what are called polystrate. Many layered fossils that stick upwards through what? That, that, that tree next to that man, hundreds of thousands of years of sediment accumulation, it defies evolutionary time because fossils don't stick up out of the forest for hundreds of thousands of years after that. Sorry, they said it right. Trees don't stick up out of, the, out of the forest for hundreds of thousands of years after they die. Trees rot. They burn. They get eaten. They get pecked at. There are probably millions of polystrate fossils all over the world. In fact, there's a guy in California a couple of years ago. He's surrounded by National Park and he had a grading service and he was excavating his backyard to flatten it out because he lives on a hill and he hit a petrified tree. And then another and another. He found a whole petrified forest, sold his business, bought a $300,000 rock saw and now sells gigantic slabs of petrified woods to museums and the guy's very wealthy. Anyway, there's lots of polystrate fossils around the world and each one of them says, no way, the time doesn't exist. But we've also got squishy things that are preserved. Things that should not be preserved. Next thing they have known is the ink sack from a squid. Now it's cool because they could take it. It's like a trick from Darwin's day. But they, they just refound this, this layer. Um, it's kind of overgrown. They forgot about it. And some guys went back there and they said, oh look, this stuff is still there. And they found this ink sack. And they ground it up in ammonia. And they drew a picture of what the original animal looked like in his own ink. But wait a minute. That ink is made out of melanin. You know what melanin is? It's a pigment in all of our skins that makes us various shades of brown. Ah, in the dark. What color is the paper? What color is my face? White brown! A little lighter than normal because we haven't had any sun for a month in Atlanta, but we are all various shades of brown. There's only one pigment in human skin. And do you know what the difference now, there's four or five major genes that influence it, but there's one major, major, major gene. You know what the difference is between the European coloration and the African coloration? One letter. Out of three billion letters in your genome, one letter makes Europeans light-colored. And I'm sorry, Europeans, this is a mutation. And I say that because it's only found in Europe. Therefore, it was not on the Ark, and it was not at the Tower of Babel. It's a post-Babel mutation. You blue-eyed people, sorry. Etc. Sorry. Off track. Off topic. So we're going to have genetics. I can't stop. So I better stop. Uh, here's another soft and squishy thing. It's an octopus. You know, we know what species that is because it's still alive today. But wait a minute. This is supposedly a Cretaceous era, more than 65 million years old. How can it still be alive today? Unchanged. I thought things were supposed to change, Mr. Darwin. Now, this is called a living fossil. And some of them absolutely defy evolutionary time. Here's one they found in... in um, Utah. First of all, it's a jellyfish. Second of all, they say 505 million years ago that this thing was swimming around in the oceans. But half a billion years ago, anybody know how old half a billion years is? 
it's a lot of zeros, right? It's like talking about government debt. There's so many zeros, you just can't quite grasp it. How long is half a billion years? Well, if you went back in evolutionary time, you'd have to go to the middle of the Cambrian era, where multicellular life is first evolving. And this jellyfish was swimming around some primitive ocean and did not change as one of his cousins went to turn from jellyfish to worms to fish to amphibians to reptiles to mammals to monkeys all the way up to man. Wait a minute, Mr. Bellman, I've got a problem with this. Because if you can say, if you can claim to explain a half a billion years of zero change and a half a billion years of radical change in the same breath, there's nothing I can use to, that I can submit in scientifically to test evolutionary theory. And guess what? It breaks down then into a philosophy. That's where we started. It is absolutely a philosophy masquerading as empirical science. And when we test it empirically, in many, many different ways, it fails. What subject would you like to test? I can't do any more tonight. What subject would you like to test? There's an idea for questions that we're going to start in about five minutes. I'll tell you what, I'm going to point you to one resource in particular. And I'm going to do this because I think that this is the tool that God used to keep me in Christianity. Besides the Holy Spirit waking me up and good Christian brothers and sisters encouraging me, there's one thing that I was really struggling with. And when I was getting my questions answered about evolutionary theory through a family magazine, my faith was being built up at its most rapid pace in my entire life. So here I am, um, um, young man, I go to this creation conference in Atlanta, and I didn't really want to go. And I heard this guy talk, and I thought he was an idiot. And, but I had $20 in my pocket, and I, I said, all right, I'm going to sign up for this magazine and see what it's all about. And so I get home in my dorm room, and I remember reading his articles like, oh, I just learned about that last week in biology class. I didn't know the Bible had an answer to that. And oh, yeah, I always worried about that in geology, but oh, I didn't know the Bible had an answer to that. And case after case after case. So what I learned... There's articles in there about radiometric dating and why carbon dating is now the creationist's best friend. Thank you, Mr. Evolution, for inventing it. You can go play with something else now. It's ours. Why do I say that? Because there's not a carbon source on Earth that is absent of carbon-14, meaning there's not a carbon source on Earth that can be millions or billions of years old. Articles about climate change. Articles about speciation from a biblical perspective, and then there's a kid section in the middle of each, each magazine. This is, I mean, really good stuff. Now, if you'd like to get it, right now, going through the audience, there's a sign-up form. The reason why I do this in the audience is because you have to write your address down, and it takes too long over here later on. I don't want to explain it five or six times. So just once. Here's what our form looks like. you got to put down your address. you have to check off one of those little boxes there if you want it for one year or three years. On the left is just the print version, but the right two dots. Um, just this year, we started offering a digital version of our magazine. We're really excited because we don't have to print the magazine. We don't have any advertisers in our magazine. It's a lot of money to print a magazine. But because we don't have to print it, we, we save all that printing cost, and we're letting people share it with five other people. So we'll send you an email. Here's the link, and you get to share it with five other people. And it doesn't matter what electronic gizmo they're using. And our subscription base is on boom, just because of that. Really cool. Um, here's a little secret. Tear off a little corner piece. Take it back here behind the magic curtain um, during our snack time, and I'll, I'll set you up with Creation Magazine. 
Now, for a one-year subscription, it comes out four times a year. For a one-year subscription, they'll give you a free back issue of the magazine. That's, I think that's very nice. But for a three-year subscription, they'll give you a free back issue of the magazine, plus your choice of a couple of DVDs. Uh, I said earlier, um, the Alternative Creations Competitive Edge, it's this talk, just two years, two or three years ago. Slightly different, but essentially the same thing. You can get that with a magazine. I recommend this even more. Darwin, the voyage that shook the world. In honor of Charles Darwin's 200th birthday, uh, we spent a million dollars on a one-hour TV-style documentary. That's the Discovery Channel. Their documentaries run about $3 million. So we did really well with our budget. But we went all over the world chasing Charles Darwin's footsteps and all over the world interviewing evolutionists about what they thought about what Darwin said and did and wrote, how his legacy is held up and things like that. And they said the most incredible things, not knowing that we were creationists and we are going to put them in a movie. <coughs> Anyway, several of them sent their, their gratuity checks back in anger. But that's okay. What we tried to do was not look, make anyone look dumb. We didn't say anything bad about Darwin. We tried to do as neutral a historical analysis of the man that started everything as we could. And I think that's a really neat, uh, a neat video. Now, you heard me talk a little bit about genetics. Uh, if you're interested in the subject, I have a talk. I should have called this um, I should have called this the genetics of Genesis, but I didn't know what I was doing back then. I gave this in front of 700 people in Australia. Mitochondria leave and the three daughters of Noah. I am claiming that in the human genome there's abundant evidence for Adam and Eve, Noah's flood, and the Tower of Babel. And I lay out the evidence. It's a powerful talk. This is my most favorite talk I've ever done. The high-tech cell. The complexity of the human genome, or the genome defies evolution. I am claiming in this talk that the human genome is the most complex computer operating system in the universe. And the reason we don't understand it is because we're not smart enough to program that way. And the genome operates in four dimensions. Good talk. Now, after, after the magazine, I think the red book is probably our most important thing. It's called the Creation Answers book. It's simply, we took the top 60 questions that we get asked, and that's about 99% of the questions, and we just listed them and answered them. So, like, you know, where did King get his wife is an old question. How do you get starlight here? And what about dinosaurs and carbon dating? And all, all those types of questions are in that book. We have packs of books. It's called the Intro Packs. That's the number one best-selling uh, creation evolution book ever called Refuting Evolution. That actually, it uses eighth-grade science to refute the, a list of evolutionary uh, observations that the National Academy of Science made. That's a powerful book. Here's a, a less than a year old, a really popular book. We're so happy with how this is, this is just flying off our shelves. Exploring Geology with Mr. Hibb. The purpose of the book is to prepare young people before they get hit with the evolutionary millions of years idea in school. And elementary school teachers introduce millions of years using geology in third or fourth grade. That's what the curriculum says. This is a great antidote, and you can get them before they hear it Start giving the answers for it. Very, very popular. We got this new pack here. There's five hardbound kids' books for a fair price. I don't want to talk about money, but that's an amazing, amazing bargain. Here's another new book: Christianity for Skeptics. I think this actually is a 12-month-old now. We just had to get it reprinted. Almost set the record for for when we had to get it reprinted. Christianity for Skeptics. I think the title speaks for itself. And the skeptics today are really, really loud. And we got this big library pack, but it's not about money. I don't care. You know what? If it was about money, we wouldn't come to this little postage stamp church in this little teeny town. 
We wouldn't do it. But you know, we're going by faith here that God's going to get us to the next one. I've spoken to 7,000 people in one day, one morning. And I've spoken to seven. I drove eight hours to speak to those seven people. Oh, sorry, nobody showed up. That's okay. And I talked to them anyway. It's not about money. It's about the information. I know what this stuff did to me as a young man. I know how my faith got grounded and, and rooted in these answers in a biblical way to science and how important it was to me. And I know there are a lot of people out there who are asking the same questions that I was asking. It might not be everybody, but it's a huge proportion of the population. If you like this stuff, tell me about another church or school that might like to have a CMI speaker. And there's seven of us in this country alone uh, going all over. But every other weekend, we're on the road speaking. And so I'll say again, you want to reach the culture? You have to prepare yourself to give them an alternative. There's no way around it. As much as that hurts. Let's leave with 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. My friends, a harsh fact shot in anger doesn't generally point someone toward the kingdom of God. But a meek answer, even heinous revolutionists, I have no idea what you're talking about, but you know what, I'm going to go look it up and I'm going to keep talking about it tomorrow. They don't expect you to do that. And often... A person has been dragged to the cross on his knees because a person without a PhD dared to defend their faith. And I think, if nothing else, that's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for not leaving us hanging with no answers. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your Bible that can lead us and guide us into truth, not just doctrine, Lord, but also history. Thank you, Father, for giving us the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to train us and teach us about, about the way things really are. And Lord, now that we're here, we're afraid. We often pass up opportunities. We're not as prepared as we need to be. But Lord, help us to study, to be prepared, and then to be bold enough to actually answer people's questions gently. Lord, use us to further your kingdom. And bring us home at the end, Lord. Amen.